Well, I'm so thankful that we, that we sang that song and even uh, where Kevin was focusing our attention in worship around the grace of God, the sufficiency of God. Um, that's gonna be really important for us to keep in mind as we get into today's passage, because I'll tell you right now, it may challenge you more than a passage has in a long time. It has certainly challenged me. If you look at the title on your outline, it says the cost of our calling. And you know, Christianity in America doesn't tend to uh, seem to talk much about cost. And, you know, we, we emphasize grace, rightly so. But uh, as Dallas Willard says, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude, effort is an action. And so this effort that we're gonna talk about this morning is not to get something. It's not to merit or earn something from God. It's completely in response to who God is and what he's done. And because of the massive enormity of God's grace, you would think that our response in effort would be enormous, wouldn't you? I certainly would. But I have to be honest that there is, there's a lot of time in my life when I look in the mirror and I, I see complacency. I see apathy. I see a willingness to drift and to coast in light of something so important. So before we even get to the text, I want to lay a foundation of very important things for us to remember when talking about effort, okay? First of all, I finished last week with this. I wanna start there again. This is the call of Christ to anyone who would follow him. He says, if anyone would come after me, this is in Mark 8, let him deny himself, take up his cross, a place of death, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever would lose his life for my sake and for the gospel's sake, he'll save it. Now, here's how Paul talks about the gospel. Let's just be crystal clear. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. We love the first two verses. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, here's where it gets tough, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I hear effort in that. Here's how Paul talked about his perspective in response to the gospel. Acts 20, 24, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's effort, not earning, but response to God's goodness. So our mission, the way we say it here, 
is cultivating connected followers of Christ. We are obsessed with that. We want to make sure that everybody on earth has an opportunity to connect upward with God and backward with their story and withward with the body and inward with their gifting and outward with the mission, all revolving around the gospel. That's what we want. That's what we pray for. That's what we strive for. That is what we're about as a church. But you know what? There's a cost. And I do want to say this. If you're here today and you're checking out Christianity, you've never necessarily trusted in Christ, you haven't placed your faith in him for the forgiveness of your sin, I want you to know I am not talking to you. I want to invite you to trust in the grace that we've been singing about. Ask Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sin, to cover you with his blood that will make your sins as white as snow. You'll be forgiven, justified, right with God, and destined for eternity with him. That, that's what I want you to hear today. I don't want you to hear a bit about effort or work or anything. But if you know Jesus Christ, if you are a Christ follower, then I want to invite you to embrace the cost of your calling, the cost of following him. Paul points to two things in this passage this morning, cultural accommodation and agonizing exertion. Let's start with the first one, cultural accommodation in verses 19 through 23. He's going to pick up, remember he said, am I not free? Remember in the beginning of last week's passage, so he comes back to this subject of freedom, and the reality is there's no greater freedom in the world than the freedom which is gained in Christ, is there? Like we are absolutely free, at liberty for days. But oftentimes we use liberty or freedom for our own purposes, in self-indulgence. But look at how Paul uses it. He says in verse 19, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. Why? That I might win more of them. That's his aim in life. He is consumed with bringing people to Christ. Remember last week that he uh, basically made sure that the Corinthians understood his right to be financially supported by the church and then explained why he had a right to, to reject that. He wanted to be free of any kind of manipulation or control in terms of humanity so that he could go after everybody that God put in front of him. The way he uses his freedom is he sacrifices it to accommodate people's personal customs. And it's not just one group, it's three groups. We'll look at those in just a moment, but... Last week he said we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So he voluntarily places himself under whoever he is with so as to remove anything that might stand in the way of them hearing, understanding, accepting, and applying the gospel. That's what he's doing here. So let's look at these three groups 
that are uh, his audiences as he practices this uh, accommodation. The first is Jews. Look in verse 20. To the Jews, I became a Jew. Why? In order to win Jews. That's what he wants. To those under the law, speaking of that same group, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Now, the problem with the Jewish community was that they were still looking to the Old Testament Mosaic law as the means of salvation. So that is a salvation of works. They think if I obey well enough, then God will accept me. And so they've got customs and traditions and ceremonies and feasts and all these practices. And it was just all about performance. And Paul obviously disagreed with that, confronted that. But he says, when I'm around Jews, and I understand that that's their, that's their mode of operation. And Paul was a Jew. So he says, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to voluntarily allow myself to be constrained by the practices of the law around these people so as to not offend them unnecessarily. And what that's going to give me an opportunity to do is to talk about grace. Because they're not going to get tripped up by what I think or don't think about the Mosaic law. He would say, you know, the law was good for Israel. God used that to point them to a savior. So he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to comply. I'm not going to look to the law as a means of salvation. I'm not going to try to be justified by obeying it. But I'm going to do that so that I can introduce this reality of grace that I have come to know. So he would accommodate the Jewish perspective. Then secondly, the Gentile perspective. Verse 21, to those outside the law, okay, so yet Jews under the law, Gentiles outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Remember, Christ said, I didn't come to do away with the law, I came to fulfill it. So he's under the law of Christ. And he's going to become like those outside the law that I might win those outside the law. Now, this is pretty challenging because he is a Jew. And he spent his whole life following the stipulations of the Mosaic law, right? And, and he, he boasted about that. Like, if you want to see how a Jew ought to live, look at the way I lived. Now he's around a bunch of Gentiles. They don't follow the law. They've got all kinds of crazy customs and traditions and everything under the sun. And he says, when I'm around them, I am not going to demand that they live like I think they ought to live, according to the traditions I grew up in. I'm actually going to observe how they live, and wherever it is not in direct conflict with the law of Christ, I'm going to jump right in. I'm going to sit down with them, and I'm going to eat whatever they put in front of me. It's okay. I'm going to be in some places that I might not normally go. 
But as long as that isn't directly conflicting with the law of Christ, with what is right and true before God, I'm going to go there. I'm going to go to them. I'm not going to make them come to me. So he's not compromising here. He's accommodating them so that he might gain a hearing. Are you already thinking about all the places where you traffic? Are you thinking about the people that are around you who are not like you? Is it your, is it your instinct to make a lot of room for them so that they can hear the gospel? Or is it to require them to, to comply with you and the way you live, your convictions? Well, lastly, he comes to the weak. We talked about this a lot last week. But in 22, he says, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. So we learned last week that there were people in the Corinthian church, these are believers, who grew up in Judaism, and perhaps not, they, this could be Gentiles as well, but so they come to Christ, and there is this Corinthian culture all around them. And they were so steeped in that that they had to set up some pretty significant boundaries for themselves, or they would just drift right back into old practices that would have been sinful. And so, they're called the weak because their conscience wouldn't allow them to fully enjoy the liberty they genuinely had in Christ. So Paul says, when I'm around people who that's just where they are in their maturity in Christ, I am not going to offend them or tempt them to violate their conscience with my freedom. I'll give up my freedom. I'll let it go because them growing and flourishing spiritually is far more important than me enjoying a liberty I have in Christ. You see the accommodation here. Now he says something that's a little bit challenging. It's pretty sweeping, might make you uncomfortable. He says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might say some, save some. So I think it's fair to ask, Paul, where's the line, man? Like, you just going to do anything and everything for everybody? Remember last week we said when you are facing that question to do or not to do, we have four questions that we need to ask ourselves. And that's where we find the line. The first is, is it moral? Does it align with or conflict with obvious scripture, God's word? If it, if it doesn't, if it conflicts with the word, then the answer is no, you just don't do it. But if, if the scriptures aren't clear or they just don't speak to it all, then I gotta ask some more questions. The second one is, is it wise? And remember, that was a, a protective question. What I don't want to do is expose myself or anyone else to unnecessary vulnerability. That's what wisdom does. 
So I ask the question, is what I'm considering, does that put me or anybody else at risk unnecessarily? And if so, then I might avoid doing that. Third, is it considerate? So I, I cannot think about the decisions in my life only as it relates to me. And I can't just disregard everybody else around me because they might be, quote, weak. I have to take them into consideration. I don't want to harm anyone in terms of their own walk with Christ. And then lastly, is it strategic? Does it advance the gospel? Remember, that's the focus here. If we're talking about the mission, it is advancing the gospel. And I want to look at my options and opportunities in light of how well they advance the mission. Is it moral? Is it wise? Is it considerate? And is it strategic? And in this cultural accommodation, we're really focused in on those last two questions, considerate and strategic. I, I learned something uh, from Crew, formerly Campus Crusade for Christ, something that they do when they go into a city or a country or a region or an area or a group or whatever, they do this thing called decoding. They literally go in and they just observe. They, they go, what, what do these people do? If you're in another country, right, you go, what language do they speak? What traditions do they have? How do they relate to one another? What might be offensive to them that isn't offensive at all to the culture that I come from? That's decoding. That's, that's getting a sense of what might stand in the way of the gospel. That's a great thing to do at your workplace with a neighbor, maybe in a co-op of some kind. Maybe if you're part of some kind of organization, Maybe you have a hobby and you're around a lot of people that like to do the same things you do. How about if you decode that and find out how you might accommodate them and pave the way for the gospel? So that's cultural accommodation. And it takes great intentionality and effort. It causes you, because of the grace of God in your life, to look outside of you and to take others into great consideration. And that leads us to our second cost of our calling, and that is agonizing exertion. Agonizing exertion. Verse 24, Paul asks, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Now he's referring to, and I'm going to tell you more about this in a moment, but there were uh, games that were similar to the Olympics. So we just got to watch the Olympics, right? And it's pretty inspiring. It's pretty intense. And we all know, just like they all knew that whenever there's a race, there's a bunch of people that get on the starting line and they take off and there's only one winner. There's no participation award. They're out there to win. I want the gold. Wasn't it amazing how many people were disappointed with silver? I'm like, I'd take a silver. <laughs> That's probably why I'm not an Olympian. <laughs> but he's saying, you know, when you're watching it, you know it 
you see that person out front and they are just pedal to the metal, everything that they've got to win, that's how you ought to be running spiritually. So he, he points to a, a day that, that he lived in, people would have identified with that. I wanted to give us a, a picture, a little inspiration, just so that you could be thinking about the intensity, the, the level of exertion that is involved in Paul's illustration. Check this out. Rise and shine. 6 a.m. and your hand can't make it to the alarm clock before the voices in your head start telling you that it's too early, too dark, and too cold to get out of bed. Aching muscles lie still in rebellion, pretending not to hear your brain commanding them to move. A legion of voices are shouting their unanimous permission for you to hit the snooze button and go back to dreamland. But you didn't ask their opinion. The voice you've chosen to listen to is one of defiance. A voice that says there was a reason you set that alarm in the first place. So sit up, put your feet on the floor, and don't look back because we've got work to do. Welcome to the grind. For what is each day but a series of conflicts between the right way and the easy way? 10,000 streams fan out like a river delta before you, each one promising the path of least resistance. Thing is, you're headed upstream. And when you make that choice, when you decide to turn your back on what's comfortable and safe and what some would call common sense, well, that's day one. From there, it only gets tougher. So just make sure this is something you want because the easy way out will always be there, ready to wash you away. All you have to do is pick up your feet. But you aren't going to, are you? With each step comes the decision to take another. You're on your way now, but this is no time to dwell on how far you've come. You're in a fight against an opponent you can't see, but oh, you can feel him on your heels, can't you? Feel him breathing down your neck. You know what that is? That's you. Your fears, your doubts, and insecurities all lined up like a firing squad, ready to shoot you out of the sky. But don't lose heart. While they're not easily defeated, they are far from invincible. Remember, this is the grind, the battle royale between you and your mind, your body, and the devil on your shoulders telling you that this is just a game. This is just a waste of time. Your opponents are stronger than you. Drown out the voice of uncertainty with the sound of your own heartbeat. Burn away your self-doubt with a fire lit beneath you. Remember what we're fighting for and never forget that momentum is a cruel mistress. She can turn on a dime or the smallest mistake. She is ever searching for the weak place in your armor, that one tiny thing you forgot to prepare for. So as long as the devil is hiding the details, the question remains, is that all you got? Are you sure? And when the answer is yes, when you've done all you can to prepare yourself for battle, then it's time to go forth and boldly face your enemy, the enemy within. Only now you must take that fight into the open, into hostile territory. You're a lion in a field of lions, all hunting the same elusive prey with a desperate starvation that says victory is the only thing that can keep you alive. So believe that voice that says you can run a little faster and you can throw a little harder and that for you, the laws of physics are merely a suggestion. Luck is the last dying wish of those who want to believe that winning can happen by accident. Sweat, on the other hand, is for those who know it's a choice. So decide now because destiny waits for no man. And when your time comes and a thousand different voices are trying to tell you you're not ready for it, listen instead to that lone voice of dissent. The one that says you are ready, you are prepared, it's all up to you now. So rise and shine.
I'm not advocating that we somehow grit it out with our own substance. But I am saying, and I think Paul is saying, that if you truly understand the sufficiency of God's grace in your life, you will rise and shine. You will exert yourself far beyond what you even believed was possible. And you will do it for God's glory and the advancement of his kingdom and the good of the people around you. That's the kind of exertion that we're talking about. We're not talking about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Now, Paul points to an illustration. They get it, we get it. Verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. We understand that, right? There's nothing complicated about that or hard to, to access. It is interesting, though, that the word translated athlete, that is the, the Greek word agonizomai, where we get the word agonize. So literally, everyone who agonizes exercises self-control. It's kind of like the first no pain, no gain idea, right? He's pointing again, like I said, to the Isthmian Games. They were second only to the Olympic Games. They were held near Corinth. And every athlete who wanted to compete in those games had to go through 10 months of training. They basically just closed everything down. They showed up at training camp and everything was regimented. They sacrificed everything so that they might run. And when they got on the starting line and took off, it was because they had prepared well. They had denied themselves and practiced self-control in preparation for the race. Now what Paul, he makes an interesting observation here, which is really great in light of the video we just saw. He said, those athletes, they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So <laughs> He's, he's going, I, I, like, I'm just stunned by the sacrifice and, and the exertion, the commitment of these athletes. And they did it for a little grassy wreath around their head that it would wither in three days. Now you get a medal. I don't know how much those are worth, but it's really not the medal, is it? It's notoriety. It's fame. Perhaps power. Perhaps endorsements, I don't know, but those people do it for things that will perish. Yet we are walking with Christ and everything that we have in this life will carry with us. As long as it is grounded in grace, we're going to carry it with us forever. So Paul says, you would think that they could make videos about us in our walk with Christ. I saw a race uh, last year. It really was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in my life. It's called the Big Backyard Ultra. And 60 people 
lined up on a starting line. And the way the race runs is you, it's a little over four miles, it's a loop, and every hour on the hour, you start a new race. And you have to finish the loop within that 60 minutes. And however quickly you finish it, you can sit down and rest, you can eat some soup, drink something, eat something, whatever you need to do. But when the next hour comes along, you got to be back on the starting line and you got to take off again. This guy right here, Guillaume Calmetis, ran for 59 hours, 246 miles, and he outlasted Harvey Lewis. So I'm just watching these guys. I'm going, who in their right mind (laughs) runs for 59 hours? And there wasn't any great reward. They did it because there was something about winning that mattered to them. What is it that matters to you? What will you run for that will take you even beyond any personal ability you might possess? Commentator Leon Morris says this, the strenuous self-denial of the athlete as he sought a fleeting reward is a rebuke to half-hearted, flabby Christian service. The athlete denies himself many lawful pleasures, and the Christian must similarly avoid not only definite sin, but anything that hinders spiritual progress. That is agonizing exertion. Paul's application, verse 26, I don't run aimlessly and I don't box as one beating the air. Life, the Christian life is full of direction and purpose. And Paul was was consumed with that. And everything that he did, he didn't leave to chance. He did it with purpose and direction. He knew where he was going. He knew why he existed. And he knew what it would take to be obedient in that moment. We're not talking about, I'm trying to say this in as many different ways as I can, we're not talking about sheer determination. We're talking about determined dependence. So that as you are going, you are constantly attentive to God, dependent upon His Spirit, aligning with God's Word. Do you see that? That it, it, it is a position of dependence, not of self-reliance. But to a watching world... It may look like sheer determination. That will give you opportunity to explain why you run so hard. Verse 27, Paul says, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He shifts metaphors here and and mentions boxing and discipline. That word discipline is literally to strike the eye. So he says there's going to be one thing that's going to stand in the way 
of me running this way, of living this way. And uh, sort of like the video, it's me. It's my flesh. It's my desire for comfort and convenience, an easy life. That's going to be what stands in the way. So he says, here's what I do. I punch my flesh in the face and knock it out. I put it down day after day after day. By God's grace, I do that so that I won't be disqualified. The flesh is a bully and it will never negotiate. Galatians talks about the flesh and the spirit are always opposed to one another, always. The flesh doesn't take days off. A, a, a persistent adversary to you and it only answers to direct orders. And so you and I, we just have to say no. Again, by God's grace. See, that's the deal. The reason I say no is because of my familiarity with and my joy around the grace of God in my life. So if I'm not saying no, my problem is I'm not seeing God and his activity on my behalf properly. But when I do, then I, I'll set aside those earthly things because I see them rightly. They're empty. 2 Timothy 2.5 says, An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And my understanding here is that we believe that salvation, once you have it, you can't lose it. You are eternally secure, but certainly God disciplines those whom he loves. And to be disciplined, if God has to step in and set you aside, that would be equated with disqualification. So you remember how much joy Paul talked about having just being able to be used by God and sharing the gospel, leading people to Christ and helping them to grow? How, how satisfying that was? To be disqualified would mean I don't get to do that anymore because I've gone after worldly things instead of eternal things, things of God. There's examples in, uh, in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians. Write down 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 10, 6. Jeff's going to get into that next week where we'll look at some Old Testament illustrations of discipline and then 1 Corinthians 11. God's discipline is restorative, but it is, it is costly in terms of our involvement. Paul was concerned that some might not be able to say with him, I have fought the good fight, and I have finished the race. That's why he is challenging us with such strength so that we might finish well. None of us run this race, race perfectly, but in community with one another, we can, we can call each other to more. So let me ask you, how are you running? 
I want you to, I want you to take a moment and I want you to listen very carefully to the Holy Spirit. Because I'm assuming there is something in what we've talked about today and what we've read in this passage where the Spirit is saying, there is more in you than is happening outwardly. And, and God wants to help you grow into that. Are you accommodating the people around you in order to gain a hearing or are you demanding your rights? Are you exerting yourself spiritually or drifting along in complacency? The best thing in the world for you and I to do is just to, just to honestly say, yes, that's, that's where I am today, but I don't have to stay here. I loved the, the illustration the video where he just said, you know, you could lift up your feet. <laughs> you could just lay back. Or you could put your feet on the ground and you could take a step. And then another step. And then another step. And then another. And I'll finish again with this idea. The degree to which you lack zeal or resolve is the degree to which you lack an understanding and appreciation for the grace of God in your life. So maybe that's the response. Whatever it is, I want you to take a minute and prayerfully ask God to put his finger on something in you that needs to grow, that needs to change. And then that's your next step. That's what you get to do when you walk out these doors today. You can do it by his grace and to the glory of God to advance his mission. All right, take a few moments and prayerfully consider that, please.